Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Science Report, a podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My name is Pete Bach, and I'm a managing director here at Back Bay. Today, my colleagues Kyle O'Neill and Brendan Wang are joining me. They're returning to the podcast after attending the Cell and Gene meeting on the Mesa, a hybrid conference with more than 1,700 industry professionals in attendance. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing investment trends that are emerging in cell and gene therapy space and were topics of discussion at this year's conference. Kyle and Brendan, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Pete. It's a pleasure to be joining from our office in Copley Square. Pleasure as always, Pete, and I'm joining from my home in Jamaica Plain with my shouting dog in the background, uh, not in the offices today. Great. Thank you both for joining. So obviously, cell and gene therapies are one of the hottest areas in investment right now in the biotech space, both in the private and public markets. So what were some of the key areas of discussion for investors this year at the conference? Well, across a variety of the interesting panels we got to sit in on and some conversations we had with the different participating companies, there were a few key themes that really emerged and you know we could probably spend 30 minutes talking about each of them. But for the purpose of today's discussion, I think we picked a handful of the most pressing ones in the cell and gene therapy space at the moment. And you could sort of group them into two buckets, the first being the second generation of, and not technically the second generation, but actually thinking from a company perspective, the second wave of company formation around newer technologies in the cell therapy space and in gene editing, uh, particularly because some of the first companies that emerged around these technologies weren't quite able to find the optimal use cases initially. As far as the other bucket of areas of investment we're interested in talking about today, there's been a lot of movement around the investment thesis and business model on gene therapies in bigger uh, indications beyond the rare monogenic diseases, and then also in the manufacturing of these complex cell and gene therapies that incorporate a variety of different technologies. Great. Great. Interesting. So, so Brendan, when, when thinking about next generation of, of the gene editing technologies and taking those first, uh, what's been piquing the interest of investors? Thanks, Pete. So, um, you know, starting with the positive, I think there's been a lot of interest in next generation uh, CRISPR and editing technologies, uh, particularly following Intellia's positive data um, in uh, six patients in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, recently. So, so that's, um, I, I think there's been a buzz for a while. Um, and it, it, you know, from this conference, we've definitely heard that sustained and, and amplified even to a bit. Um, and, and so, you know, Kyle was mentioning sort of the next generation or CRISPR 2.0 as we kind of hear it thrown around a bit. And it, and, and, you know, what we mean by that is, you know, the next phase of technologies and innovation um, past the first generation of CRISPR technologies, right? So a couple of the, the challenges um, that we've seen in that sort of first iteration has been, you know, restrictions to PAM sites. So, you know, we might be able to meaningfully uh, understand and identify mutations that we 
hypothetically could address, but maybe it's not near a relevant PAM site. And so it's technically not targetable, at least with the first iteration of things. Um, right, and then there are all sorts of questions. We've been talking about it for a number of years now about off-target effects. Um, you know, what happens? These things are expressed for long periods of time. Um, certainly, we don't want there to be unintended consequences of that. Um, and, and so that is, you know, definitely a, a huge, um, you know, lingering question. Um, and then as comes up in nearly every conversation uh, is packaging, right? And delivery vectors, what's the right way uh, to get the machinery to the right tissues and cells? Um, and as we move from ex vivo approaches to in vivo approaches that target the liver, how can we think about moving beyond just liver-based diseases to editing other tissues of interest, such as, um, you know, certainly in the CNS uh, is, is a very interesting space. And then, you know, musculoskeletal um, uh, you know, diseases as well. And, and so, uh, yeah, I think, you know, rehashing, I think, old themes and challenges here over the last couple of years, but you know, with this conference and with our ongoing client work in this space, what we've seen in this new and next up and coming iteration of things. So next generation nucleases, right? So if you can't change the size of the vector that you're um, packaging things into, then maybe we can come up with smaller nucleases so you can fit other things in that package alongside the uh, the nuclease. Um, nucleases that have a wider variety of uh, PAM sequences that give you more options in terms of where you can make edits and cuts. Um, and then, you know, trying to minimize um, off-target effects, um, again, through uh, discovery of novel nucleases. Now, the original ones are bacterial uh, in origin, but there are companies out there looking at other, uh, you know, plant-based and uh, other sources of, of nucleases as well. And so um, that's a, you know, interesting area um, of investment um, as well. So, you know, LifeEdit and Arbor are two great examples of, of companies that are making a lot of headway in the nuclease space. Um, and just for everyone's edification, uh, Brendan, when you're talking about PAM, what do you mean by that? Good question. I will jump in and help Brendan out on the acronym and say it is a protospacer adjacent motif. And Brendan can double check me here in real time, hopefully. No, no that's right. Um, I mean, it's essentially a really short um, uh, you know, sequence adjacent or near um, the edit site that you're interested in, ad in addressing uh, in, in the DNA. And it helps direct where the nuclease should go in order to make the edit in the in the target side, right? So if, um, you know, you can only recognize certain short sequences, these PAMs, um, then if there's no PAM site near a, you know, sequence that you're interested in editing, unfortunately, even though we know where you need to edit, uh, make the edit, it may not be uh, with the existing, you know, Cas9 and, and other um, early nucleases may not be directly amenable. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so, Kyle, one of the other topics you alluded to was was sort of how the the cell therapy field 
is evolving and how that's influencing where investors are placing their bets. Can you tell us more about that? Well, at the outset, I sort of alluded to the first wave of companies advancing uh, technologies in the cell and CRISPR or cell therapy and CRISPR spaces. You know, Brendan talked about some of the sort of next up and coming technologies relating to CRISPR. Uh, and the positive enthusiasm there's been for some of those technologies following Intelli's positive data. I'd say, you know, it's certainly contrast in the cell therapy space because the most relevant recent news is probably uh, with Allergene's clinical hold across all their programs for their allogeneic CAR T cell therapies. So while the first generation of technologies is largely autologous, meaning that you have white blood cells that are taken from a patient, manufactured for a couple of weeks, and then put back into the patient. And we've seen some successes with those uh, from some of the biggest companies in the space, such as Novartis, Gilead, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. The second wave of companies trying to do what you do with an autologous CAR therapy with an allogeneic CAR therapy, meaning that you can sort of produce the white blood cells without taking it from each patient individually, uh, hasn't really lived up to the benchmarks set by the first generation of therapies and things that are on the market. You know, so even though there are challenges with things like the therapies advanced by Novartis, Gilead, and BMS, uh, and those therapies specifically being Kimria, Yescarta, Brazani, and Abecma on the market at this moment. Uh, they all have, you know, known logistical and safety issues. Manufacturing takes a long period of time, and the relapse rates are still fairly substantial. Uh, but there's a lot of concern around what these purported better technologies are actually able to deliver on. Great. Interesting. So obviously, none of these innovations really matter if it can't reach patients. And so as a result, manufacturing capacity and, and planning has been a key area of early stage investor diligence in these types of companies. And, and that's been leading to a number of interesting corporate models that have emerged as a result in this space. So Kyle, what were you hearing at the conference on that front? Well, the first corporate model that I think we're going to touch on in today's conversation was this idea that you have companies that have the manufacturing capabilities to make these therapies faster and get them to patients much more rapidly, which is critical across these uh, advanced oncology indications, particularly, and sort of incorporating those technologies alongside a company with therapies that we sort of more traditionally think of as a biotechnology company. You know, you might think of a company like an Elevate Bio or on the gene therapy side, you can think of Forge Biologics as companies where they have the manufacturing capacity as sort of the baseline of the business model and then are building on top of that manufacturing capability a pipeline of programs that would be more traditionally the focus of some of the biotechnology and pharmaceutical investors. Interesting. Interesting. So a little bit sort of the reverse about how people would normally consider developing a you know, monoclonal antibody platform where they're building the manufacturing capability first and then figuring out what sort of uh, product and therapeutic area you want to go after second. Certainly. And I think 
across the field, it's widely recognized that there is a challenge uh, with manufacturing these therapies. You know, COGS is a huge cost. There are a ton of different components that go into these therapies and capacity is a big concern with all the investment into the space. But once you really get into who knows how to actually execute on building out the manufacturing capabilities, it's a much smaller pool of expertise and companies are really struggling to get to that, which leads to a host of interesting questions if you're a smaller biotech company around whether you want to try and build out that capability yourself or try and partner with a expert in manufacturing these therapies if you haven't, you know, been founded around this novel business concept where you pair the manufacturing with the product pipeline. Gotcha. Gotcha. So so the last topic you both mentioned at the outset was sort of the 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 business model as regards choice of indication and how that's evolving. And so you know, obviously rare diseases have traditionally been the proving ground for these types of technologies but you know from a broader commercial potential you know larger more diffuse uh disease areas are seen as as the holy grail potentially uh to really unlock the commercial potential of these therapies so so brendan what were you hearing about how people are, are trying to think through some of the issues on translating what has traditionally been sort of a a rare disease clinical development and commercialization playbook into uh, one that may be able to address uh, larger diseases? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think it's a really good question. It's one that um, more and more companies, I think it's, it's more obvious now because we have so many companies involved in the gene and cell therapy um, space. But a, a couple of years ago when this was still an emerging field, uh, you definitely get these questions um, a lot less frequently. And I, I think now more people have run the math on, okay, what would it take to sustain and build a business around a small monogenic disease? And, you know, we can prove the platform here, but really how do we generate a return for our shareholders? Because at the end of the day, you're talking about a much shorter um, revenue life cycle, um, given that you know, you cure all of the prevalent patients and then you're dependent on more of the incident um, uh, population for continued uh, revenue in the out years. So, you know, you talk about rare diseases. Yeah, there there, there could be a couple thousand or, or maybe tens of thousands of, of patients um, who are identified maybe in registries already. And, and that's very tractable for um, initially kind of, uh, you know, getting a gene therapy off the ground. But then, you know, if there's 50 patients born a year with this disease, can you build a business off that? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's tough. So you, you see a lot of these companies having to stack, you know, much more of these gene therapy programs in closer together uh, in order to kind of sustain those um, peaks that come on very quickly and then drop off very rapidly as well. Um, and so the question is, you know, how do you tap into larger markets? And, and that goes back a bit to um, a, a theme earlier that I think I alluded to, but maybe didn't directly address. So what types of technologies are people looking into? Um, and so multiplexing and how do you target um, polygenic diseases? I mean, that is definitely a shift that we're starting to see. And 
hear that in, in um, client discussions all the time. And so, you know, can you go after diseases, uh, cardiovascular diseases? So we certainly know there are a number of complicated, um, but reasonably well-defined cardiovascular diseases where multiple genes may be implicated. So can you devise or use or apply CRISPR in those cases? Um, and then, you know, given that those diseases are much more complex from a biology perspective, can we expect those to be cures or um, are these non-curative but maybe long-lasting disease-modifying therapies? And particularly on the non-curative but disease-modifying front, uh, then the question is, you know, what implications does that have to pricing? Um, because certainly the value proposition to this point has been that you're replacing chronic therapy. Um, now, okay, maybe it's not permanent, but you get three years of efficacy or five years of efficacy. Uh, and so how do you, you know, how do payers get comfortable with, um, with that? Um, and I think in particular, uh, really what has evolved here is that um, you, you really need to think about what are all the different modalities that are being tested in these therapeutic areas and, and um, how do they compare to one another? Uh, because in five years time, you know, we went from having permanent cures to, okay, long lasting efficacy. So the value proposition has been changing. And so as you're planning for launches in large indications, just, ha you know, doing the diligence and making sure we really understand from a technological perspective um, what you're able to offer to patients um, in terms of uh, durability of response. Yeah, it seems to be almost an evolving field as far as what the, you know, what the goal of the TPP, uh, the tar target product profile uh, is is going to look like in these diseases compared to something like sickle cell, you know, and then secondly, the whole, you know, issue of what's the, what's the business model and what's the pricing and reimbursement scheme or schema that people are going to have to be using for what is inherently going to be a more expensive therapy than your, you know, run of the mill statin in a, CV disease, for instance. So uh, I think both of those are potentially uh, topics for their own entire podcast. Absolutely. So gentlemen, thank you very much for, for joining me. Very, very interesting. Um, can't wait to have you back after you uh, 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 attend next year's uh, conference. And we'll leave it at that for this episode of the Life Science Report brought to you by Back Bay Life Science Advisors.